0: Chapter 7, Part 2 of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter 7, The Battle of Tongues, Part 2 of 2. He was spending the night at the Calcots. Harriet, too, was there, but he was in no hurry to get back there. It was a clear and very starry night. He took the tram car away from the center of the town, then walked. As was always the case with him in this country, the land and the world disappeared as night fell, as if the day had been an illusion, and the sky came bending down. There was the Milky Way in clouds of star fume, bending down right in front of him, right down till it seemed as if he could walk onto it if he kept going. The pale, fumy drift of the Milky Way drooped down and seemed so near, straight in front, that it seemed the obvious road to take, and one would avoid the strange dark gaps, gulfs in the way overhead. And one would look across to the floating aisles of star fume to the south, across the gulfs where the sharp stars flashed like lighthouses, and one would be in a new way denizen of a new plane, walking by oneself. There would be a real new way to take, and the mechanical earth, quite obliterated, sunk out. He saw On the sea's high black horizon, the various reddish, sore looking lights of a ship. There they were, the signs of the ways of men, hot looking and weary. He turned quickly away from the marks of the far off ship to look again at the downward slope of the great hill of the Milky Way. He wanted so much to get out of this lit up cloy of humanity and the exhaust of love and the fretfulness of desire why not swing away into cold separation why should desire always be fretting fretting like a tugged chain why not break the bond and be single take a fierce stoop and a swing back When again it plunges like a white metallic arrow into the sea raising a burst of spray disappearing completing the downward curve of the parabola in the invisible underwater where it seizes the object of desire then away away with success upwards flashing into the air and white space why not why want to urge 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 oneself down the causeways of desirous love hard pavements of love even like kangaroo Why shouldn't meeting be a stoop as a gannet stoops into the sea or a kite in a swift rapacious parabola downwards touch at the lowermost turn of the curve then up again it is a world of slaves all love professing why unite with them why pander to them why go with them at all why not strike at communion Out of the unseen, as the gannet strikes into the unseen underwater, or the kite from above at a mouse. One seizure, and away again. Back away into isolation. A touch, and away. Always back, away into isolation. Why be cloyed and dragged down like billions of fish in water or billions of mice on land? It is a world of slaves. Then why not gannets in the upper air having two worlds? Why only one element? If I am to have a meeting, it shall be down, down in the invisible. And the moment I reemerge, I shall be alone. In the visible world, I am alone. Instance. My meeting is in the underworld, the dark. Beneath every gannet that jumps from the water, ten thousand fish are swimming still. But they are swimming in a shudder of silver fear. That is the magic of the ocean. Let them shudder in the huge ocean a-glimmer. He arrived at Wywork at last and found a little party. William James was there, and Victoria had made, by coincidence, a Welsh rarebit the beer was on the table just in time said jack as well you're not half an hour earlier or there might have been no booze how did you come trem yes and walked part of the way what kind of an evening did you have said harriet he looked at her a chill fell upon the little gathering from his presence we didn't agree he replied I knew you wouldn't, not for long, anyhow," she replied. "I don't see you a green and plain second fiddle for long. Do you see me as a fiddler at all? I've seen you fiddling away hard enough many times," retorted Harriet. "Why, what else do you do all your life but fiddle some tune or another?" He did not reply, and there was a pause. His face was pale and very definite, as if it were some curious seashell. "'What did you get the wind up about between you?' said Jack soothingly, pouring Somers a glass of beer. "'No wind. We're only not the same pair of shoes.' "'I could have told you that before you went,' said Jazz, with quiet elation in his tones." Victoria looked at Summers with dark, bright eyes. She was quite fascinated by him, as an Australian bird by some adder. Isn't Mr. Summers queer? she said. He doesn't seem to mind a bit. Summers looked at her quickly, a smile around his eyes, and a curious smiling devil inside them, cold as ice oh yes he minds don't take any notice of his pretense he's only in a bad temper cried harriet i know him by now he's been in a temper for days oh why cried victoria i thought he was lovely this afternoon when he was here yes said harriet grimly lovely you should live with him but again victoria looked at his clear fixed face with a false smile around the eyes and her fascination did not diminish what an excellent welsh rarebit he said there were a little red pepper red pepper cried victoria there is and she sprang up to get it for him and as she handed it to him he looked into her dilated dark bright eyes and thanked her courteously when he was in this state his voice and tone in speaking were very melodious of course it set harriet on edge but victoria stood fluttering with her hands over the table bewildered what are you feeling for asked jack only gave a little blind laugh and remembered that she was going to sit down so she sat down and then wondered what it was she was going to do after that you don't cotton on to kangaroo either said jack easily i have the greatest admiration for him well you're not alone there but you don't fall over yourself loving him i only trip and recover my balance for the moment Jabs gave a loud laugh across his cheese that's good he said you trip and recover your balance said jack you're a wary one the rest of us falls right in flop and are never heard of again and how did you part then we parted in mutual esteem i said i would go and he asked me please to do so as quickly as possible jack made round eyes and even Jazz left off eating did you quarrel cried harriet oh yes violently but of course not vulgarly. We parted, as I said, in mutual esteem, bowing each other out. You are awful. You only went on purpose to upset him. I knew that all along. Why must you be so spiteful, said Harriet? You're never happy unless you're upsetting somebody's apple cart. Am I doomed to agree with everybody then? no but you needn't set out to be disagreeable and to mr cooley especially who likes you and is such a warm big man you ought to be flattered that he cares what you think no you have to go and try to undermine him Ah! why was i ever pestered with such a viperish husband as you said harriet victoria made alert frightened eyes but Summers set on with the same little smile and courteous bearing. I am of course immensely flattered at his noticing me. He replied, "Otherwise, naturally, I should have resented being told to leave. As it was, I didn't resent it a bit. Didn't you?" cried Harriet. "I know you and your pretences. What put you in such a temper?" "'But do you remember I've been in a temper for days?' he replied calmly and gravely. "'Therefore, there could be no pudding.' "'Oh, it would only made you worse. I'm tired of your temper, really.' "'But Mr. Summers isn't in a temper at all,' cried Victoria. "'He's nicer than any of us, really. "'Jack would be as angry as anything if I said all those things to him. "'Shouldn't you, Jack?' And she cuddled his arm. You'd be shut up in the coal shed for the night before you got halfway through with it if you ever started tying it on, He replied with marital humor. No, I shouldn't either, or it would be the last door you'd shed on me, so there. But anyway, you'd be in a waxy old temper, smiled Summers as she cuddled her husband's arm. If my hostess says I'm nice, said Summers, I am not going to feel guilty, whatever my wife may say. Oh, yes, you do feel guilty, said Harriet. Your hostess doesn't find any fault with you at all, cried Victoria. She was looking very pretty in a brown chiffon dress. She thinks you're the nicest of anybody here, there. What, cried Jack, when I'm here as well? whether you're here or not you're not very nice to me to-night and william james never is but mr somers is awfully nice she blushed suddenly quite vividly looking under her long lashes at him he smiled a little more intensely to himself i tell you what mrs somers said jack we would better make a swap of it till they alter their opinion you and me had better strike up a match Let them two elope with one another for a bit.' "'And what about William James?' cried Victoria, very vivid excitement. "'Oh, nobody need trouble themselves about William James,' replied that individual. "'It's about time he was rolling home.' "'No,' said Harriet, in answer to Jack. "'I'm striking off no more matches, thank you. The game's not worth the candle.' why maybe you've only struck on the rough side you know said jack you might strike on the smooth side next time no said harriet i'm going to bed and leave you all to your striking and your bad tempers good-night she rose roughly victoria jumped up to accompany her to her room the summers had had a room each in torreston so victoria had put them each separately into a nice little room in her house. Is it right, said Jack, that you got the wind up tonight? No, said Somers. At least we only quite lovingly agreed to differ, nothing else. I thought it would be like that, said Jack. He thinks the world of you. I can see that. James stood ready to leave. He looked at Summers cunningly, as if reading into him with his light-gray, skeptical eyes. "'Mr. Summers doesn't care to commit himself so easily,' he said. "'No,' said Jack. "'You blighters from the old country are so mighty careful of risking yourselves. That's what I'm not. When I feel a thing, I jump up and go for it and damn the consequences.' there's always plenty of time to think about a thing after you've done it and if you're a fool enough to wish you hadn't done it why that shows you shouldn't have i don't go in for regrets myself i do what i want and if i want to do a thing then it's all right when it's done all a man's got to do is keep his mouth shut and his fist ready and go down on his knees to nothing then he can damn well do as he pleases and all he asks is that other folks shall do as they please, men or women. Damn all this careful stunt. I'll step along as far as the tram with you, Jazz. I feel like walking the Welsh rarebit down into his burrow. Vicky prefers mr Summers to me, pro tem, and I don't begrudge it her. Why should I? Victoria was putting away the dishes and seemed not to hear. The two men went. Somers still sat in his chair. He was truly in a devil of a temper with everybody and everything, a wicked fiendish mood that made him look quite handsome as fate would have it. He had heard Jack's hint. He knew Victoria was attracted to him, that she imagined no nonsense about love. She was too remote from the old world and for that. The moment that was all her feelings were to her and at this moment she was fascinated and when she said in her slightly contralto voice you're not in a temper with me though are you mr somers she was so comely like a maiden just ready for love and like a comely desirous virgin offering herself to the wayfarer in the name of the god of bright desire the summer stretched out his hand and stroked her hot cheek very delicately with the tips of his fingers, replying, "I could never be angry with you. You're much too winsome." She looked at him with her dark eyes dilated into a glow, a glow of offering faintly rising to his feet and desire in all his limbs like a power the moment. And the power of the moment. Again he felt his limbs full of desire like a power, and his days of anger culminate now in this moment, like bitter smoldering that at last leaps into flame. Not love, just weapon like desire. He knew it. The god Bacchus, jocose, jocose, bacchanals, with weapon hands could glow in her eyes bacchus the true bacchus jack would not begrudge the god and the fire was very clean and steely after the smoke and he felt the velvety fire of her face in his fingertips and still his old stubborn self intervened he decided almost involuntarily perhaps it was fear good night he said to her jack will be back in a moment you look bonny tonight and he went to his room when he had shut the door he wondered if it was merely a sort of cowardice honour no need as far as jack was concerned apparently and harriet she was too honest a female she would know that the dishonour as far as she felt it lay in the desire not in the act for her too honor did not consist in a pledged word kept according to a pledge but in a genuine feeling faithfully followed he had not to reckon with honor here what then why not follow the flame the moment sacred to bacchus why not if it was a way of life he did not know why not Perhaps only old moral habit, or fear, as Jack said, of committing himself. Perhaps only that. It was Victoria's high moment. All her high moments would have this bacchic, weapon like momentaneity. Victoria was Victoria. Why then deny it? The pagan way, the many gods, the different service, the sacred moments of Bacchus other sacred moments, Zeus and Hera, for examples, Ares and Aphrodite, all the great moments of the gods. Why not know them all, all the great moments of the gods, the major moment with Hera, to the swift, short moments of Eo or Leda or Ganymede? Should not a man know the whole range, and especially the bright, swift, weapon-like, vachic occasion? Should not any man seize it when it offered? But his heart of hearts was stubbornly puritanical, and his innermost soul was dark and sullen, black with a sort of scorn. These moments bred in the head and born in the eye had enough of them. These flashes of desire for a visual object would no longer carry him into action. He had no use for them. There was a downslope to Orcus and a vast phallic sacred darkness where one was enveloped into the greater God as in an Egyptian darkness. He would meet there or nowhere. To the visual travesty, he would lend himself no more. Pondering and turning recklessly, he heard Jack come back. Then he began to doze. He did not sleep well in Australia. It seemed as if the original demon entered his body as he slept to destroy its old constitution. Sleep was almost pain and too full of dreams. This night he woke almost at once from a vivid little dream. The fact of the soonness troubled him too. He never dreamed till morning. The dream had been just this. He was standing in the living room at coo or forward doing some little thing by the couch, perhaps folding a newspaper, making the room tidy at the last moment before going to bed, when suddenly a violent darkness came over him. He felt his arms pinned. He heard a man's voice speaking mockingly behind him with a laugh. It was as if he saw the man's face, too, a stranger, a rough strong sort of australian and he realized with horror now they have put a sack over my head and fastened my arms and i am in the dark and they are going to steal my little brown handbag from the bedroom which contains all the money we have the shock of intense reality made him fight his way out of the depths of the first sleep but it was some time before he could really lay hold of facts like i am not at kooee i am not at mullumbimby i am in sydney at waywork and the kulkats are in the next room He came really awake but if the thing had really happened it could hardly have happened to him more than in his dream in the morning they were returning to the south coast but jack said to Summers a little sarcastically You aren't entirely pleased with us then, Summers hesitated before replying. I'm not altogether pleased with myself, am I? You don't have to be so particular in this life, said Jack. I may have to be. You can't have it all perfect beforehand, you know. You've got to sink a few times before you can swim. Sink in what? Why, it seems to me you want to have a thing already in your hand, know all about it before you'll try it. And there's some things you can't do that with. You've just got to flop into them like when you chuck a dog in the water. Summers received this rebuke rather sourly. This was the first wintry day they had really had. There was a cold fog in Sydney in the morning. In the hills it would be snow, away in the blue mountains. But the fog lifted, and the rain held off, and there was a wash of yellow sunshine. Harriet, of course, had to talk to a fellow passenger in the train, because Lovat was at his glummiest. It was a red-mustached Welshman with a slightly injured look in his pale blue eyes, as if everything had been as good to him as he thought it ought considering his merit he said his name was evans and he kept a store he had been 16 years in the country and is it very hot in the summer said harriet i suppose it is yes he said it's very hot i've known the days when i've had to lie down at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and not been able to move overpowered that's what it is overpowered Harriet was suitably impressed tried heat in India, and do you think it takes one long to get used to this country? She asked after a while. Well, I should say it takes about four or five years for your blood properly to thin down. You can't say you've begun under two years, four or five years. re-echoed Harriet, but what you was really turning over in your mind was this phrase for your blood to thin down to thin down how queer Lovett also heard this sentence and realized that his blood is thinning rather badly and still about four years of simmering ahead apparently if he stayed in this country and when the blood had finished its thinning what then he looked at mr evans with the sharp pale nose and the reddish hair and the injured look in his pale blue eyes mr evans seemed to find it sweet still to talk to people from the old country you're from the old country the inevitable question the thinning down had left him looking as if he felt he lacked something yet he wouldn't go back to south wales oh no he wouldn't go back the blood is thinner out here than in the old country. The Australians seem to accept as a scientific fact. Richard felt he didn't want his blood thinned down, Australian constituency. Yet no doubt in the night, in his sleep, the metabolic change was taking place fast and furious. It was raining a little in the late afternoon when Somers and Harriet got back to Cooee with infinite relief she stepped across her own threshold ah she said taking a long breath thank god to be back looked round and went to rearrange on the sofa the cushions that they had whacked so hard to get the dust out Summers went to the edge of the grass to be near the sea it was raving in long rasping lines of hissing breakers not very high ones but very long the sky hung gray with veils of dark rain out to sea and in the south a blackness of much rain blowing nearer in the wind at the end of the jetty in the midst of the sea wind's spray a long heavy coal steamer was slowly toiling to cast loose and get away the waves were so long and the current so strong That they would hardly let her turn and get clear of the misty black jetty under the dark gray sky the sea looked bright but coldly bright with its yellow-green waves and its ramparts of white foam there were usually three white ramparts one behind the other of rasping surf and sometimes four then the long swish and surge of the shoreward wash. The coast was quite deserted, the steep sand wet as the backwash slid away, the rocks wet with rain, the long black streamer still labored in the fume of the wind indistinctly. Chalmers turned indoors and suddenly began taking off his clothes in a minute he was running naked in the rain which fell with lovely freshness on his skin ah he felt so stuffy after that sort of emotional heat in town harriet in amazement saw him quietly disappearing over the edge of the cliff bank and came to the edge to look he ran quickly over the sands where the wind blew cold but velvety and the raindrops fell loosely He walked straight into the forewash and fell into an advancing ripple. At least it looked like a ripple, but was enough to roll him over so that he went under and got a little taste of the Pacific. Ah, the fresh, cold wetness, the fresh, cold wetness. The water rushed in the backwash and the sand melted under him, leaving him stranded like a fish he turned again to the water. The walls of surf were some distance off, but near enough to look rather awful as they raced in high white walls shattering toward him, and above the ridge of the waving whiteness in the dimness of the laboring steamer as if it were perched on a bow. Of course he did not go near the surf no the last green ripples of the broken swell were enough to catch him by the scruff of the neck and tumble him rudely up the beach in a pell-mell but even the blow did one good as the sea struck one heavily on the back if one were fleeing full in the chest if one were advancing it was raining quite heavily as he walked out and the skies hung low over the sea dark over the green and white vigour of the ocean the shore was so foam-white that it almost suggested sun the rain felt almost warm harriet came walking across the grass with a towel what a good idea she said if i had known i'd have come i wish i had but he ignored the towel and went into the little wash-place and under the shower to brush off the sticky, strong Pacific. Harriet came along with the towel, and he put his hand to her face and nodded to her. She knew what he meant. But when he had rubbed the wet off himself, he came to her. She was more wondering than anything. But when it was the end, and the night was falling outside, she laughed and said to him, That was done in style. That was chic, straight from the sea like another creature. Style and chic seemed to him somewhat ill-suited to the occasion, but he brought her a bowl of warm water and went and made tea. The wind was getting noisier and the sea was shut out, but still calling outside the house. They had tea and toast and quince jam, seven brown teapots with a bit off the spout shone quite nicely and brightly at the corner of the little red-and-white checked tea-cloth which itself occupied a corner of the big polished jarra table thank god he felt cool and fresh and detached not cosy and domestic so thankful not to be feeling cosy and homely the room felt as penetrable to the outside influence, as if it were a seashell lying on the beach, cool with the freshness and insistence of the sea, not a snug, cozy box to be secured inside. And Jack Calcott's rebuke stuck in his throat. Perhaps, after all, he was just a palmy, prescribing things with overmuch emphasis and wanting to feel God Almighty in the face of unborn events. A palmy is a newcomer in Australia from the old country. Teacher, why did you hit him, Georgie? Georgie, please, miss, he called me a palmy. Aussie, with a discolored eye, well, you're one, ain't you? Can I help it, that jar one? Palmy is supposed to be short for palm granite. Pomegranate, pronounced invariably Pomegranate, is a near enough rhyme to immigrant in a naturally rhyming country. Furthermore, immigrants are known in the first months before their blood thins down by their round and ruddy cheeks, so we are told. Hence again, pomegranate, and hence, Pome. Let etymologists be pleased, it is the authorized derivation. "'Perhaps,' said Somers to himself, "'I am just a palmy and a fool. "'If my blood had thinned down, "'I shouldn't make all this fuss "'over sharing in with Kangaroo "'or being mates with Jack Calcutt. "'If I am not a ruddy palmy, "'I am a green one. "'Of course they take the thing "'as it comes to them, "'and they expect me to do the same. "'Yet there I am, "'hopping and hissing like a fish "'in a frying pan.' Putting too much soul into it. Far too much. The blood has thinned down out here. There's nothing left but the merest settlement of a soul left, and your wits and your feelings are clear of it. You take things as they come, as Jack says. Isn't that the sanest way to take them, instead of trying to drive them through the exact hole in the hedge that you've managed to poke your head through? Oh, You unlearn a lot as your blood thins down but there's an awful lot to be unlearned and when you've unlearned it you never say so in the first place because it's dead against the same old british tradition and in the second place because you don't really care about telling what you feel once your blood has thinned down and is clear of soul then you australian burgundy said Somers to his own body, when he caught a glimpse of it unawares, reflected in the glass as he was going to bed. You're thin enough as a bottle, but wine needs a lot of maturing. I've made a fool of myself latterly. Yet he said to himself, do I want my blood to thin down like theirs? That peculiar emptiness that is in them, because of the thinning that's gone out of them? do i want this curious transparent blood of the antipodes with its momentaneous feelings and its sort of absentness but of course till my blood has thinned down i shan't see with their eyes and how in the name of heaven is this world brotherhood mankind going to see with one eye eye to eye when the very blood is of different thickness on different continents and with the difference in blood, the inevitable psychic difference. Different vision. End of chapter 7, The Battle of Tongues, part 2 of 2.